Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming George Drance to the show. Father George Drance is a member of the Society of Jesus, an order of Roman Catholic priests, most often referred to as Jesuits, renowned for their educational and charitable works. However, his professional life has been defined by the performing arts and theater specifically. He received his MFA in acting from Columbia University in New York and currently serves as artist-in-residence at Fordham University, as well as the artistic director of the daring and critically acclaimed Magis Theater Company. He is a resident artist in La Mama's Great Jones Repertory Company, and he has both performed and directed theatrical productions all over New York, the United States, and the world. I met Father Drance while in college at Marquette University when he returned to direct our theater department in what was the American premiere of Calderón de la Barca's Auto Sacramental play Life is a Dream, which Father Drance translated from the original Spanish. Both the play and Father Drance left a deep artistic and spiritual impression on all of us at the time, and it is my great honor to have the opportunity to reconnect with him today. Welcome to the show, George. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh man, it is, um, it's a real joy to be speaking to you. Many of my, if not all of my peers from Marquette that had the experience of performing in the play that you directed, Life is a Dream, it was deeply impressionable, as I mentioned, man. And I'm thrilled to get to hear more about your specific spiritual journey and your life story. And I'm so honored that you're willing to join me today. Oh, thank you. It was a, it was a joy to be at Marquette. And I think that was a really, really special group of artists that we had the chance to work with on that show. So uh, I remember it quite fondly and really look back at it as a time of real collaboration. I learned so much. It was one of the first times that, well, it was the first time that the play had a full production. Many people know Calderon's earlier version of Life is a Dream, which was the Comedia version that he wrote in 1635, 1636. But this later one, he wrote in 1677 and rewrote it as a, a spiritual allegory. So it was a delight to work at it. Phyllis Ravel, what a tremendous human being she was yes. uh, to make that happen. And I think it happened in in the year 2000. So it was right there for the whole Eucharistic Holy Year, for the millennium. It was just a very, very special time. Yeah, yeah, it was a very important time. Phyllis, obviously, deeply impressionable on all of us that were there. And Phyllis hangs on my wall, actually, in this room that I record in. I'm looking at her right now. <laughs> Are you? How beautiful. Oh, that's yes. I also wanted to say that I noticed on Facebook that it's your 25-year anniversary of your ordination. That's right. Yesterday. Oh, man. 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Well, I can't wait to hear more about what that journey has been and what led you there. But first, I got to know, what'd you have for breakfast? <laughs> well, you know, when you told me that that was one of the things that you asked, I said, oh, I have to remember to eat healthy that day. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, quite coincidentally, I had a bowl of oatmeal with blueberries. Oh, so all right, I'm, good. <laughs> I, it wasn't even planned. It was in mid-bowl that I realized, oh, Nick is going to ask me this. So I'm so glad it's this and not my usual two biscottis and eight coffees. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I was like, yeah, Burger King breakfast sandwich. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, uh, um, no, that that's great. Although uh, about eight coffees and two biscottis, that sounds pretty good too, I gotta say. I'm into that. All right, George, there's a lot I wanna hear and I imagine you have a lot to share. So let's begin. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Well, I would have to say from my parents and grandparents. Uh, one of my most vivid memories of my mom, uh, she passed when I was quite young. I was nine years old. Mm. But I remember as a young child, every night we would kneel in the dining room uh, in front of the crucifix and we would say our good night prayers. So I was one of seven children. There were three of us younger ones who all had the same bedtime. And mm. so I remember quite vividly saying our, our prayers before bed and um, just being raised in a house where I think religion was important, uh, spirituality was important, church was important, was a real blessing. I grew up in the Ukrainian Byzantine rite of the Catholic Church. Many people don't realize that the Catholic Church has several rites of different origins throughout the world. I think you'll have to define for me exactly the way in which you use the word rite. I'm not sure I understand it the way you're using it. Sure. Well, um, most people, when they look at the Church of Rome, they see the Latin rite of the church. So they see the Roman Missal and they see all of that, that liturgy. But we in the Eastern churches use different liturgies. In the Ukrainian Byzantine rite, we use the liturgy of the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, which was written in the fourth century. And then on holy days, we use the liturgy of St. Basil. So it's liturgically very, very similar to the other Eastern Christian churches, uh, the Orthodox churches. But in terms of, of governance and in terms of lineage, we identify with Rome as the apostolic succession. Does that mean that those of you that are in the, did you call them the Eastern Rite? Yep. Mm-hmm. Not Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Rite Catholic. That's correct, This yeah. would have been under Roman rule then? This would have remained, I suppose, on the Western side of what would have been the Eastern kingdoms? Sure. Probably the best way to understand it is that, I mean, it would be a very, very short, <laughs> almost a lecture in church history, but there were different manifestations of how people preserved the legacy of the apostles, the legacy of the early church as it grew in their own native lands. In Syria and Lebanon, there are the Melkite rites or the Maronite rites. In India, there's the, the Malabar rite. There are very many different rites. There's even a Gallic rite, which I think originated in France and is still followed by some that are, are separate from the Latin rite. But they're basically local and enculturated manifestations of liturgical practice based on locale. Hmm. Now, in the early part of the church, we had the Church of Rome and the Church of Constantinople, but it was still one church. It wasn't until uh, the 11th century where a number of disputes between the two rites, or between the two areas rather, kind of came to an impasse and uh, the church split. Hmm. So uh, the Church of Constantinople became the Orthodox Church and the Church of Rome became the Latin rite, the Roman Catholic Church. 
which still maintains some of those other rights. Now, later on, this is, you know, flash, flash forward another, I don't know, six, seven centuries. St. Josephat was someone who thought that it was scandalous that the Christian churches were divided. And so he advocated uh, reunification. He preached that and he gave his life for that because there were people for political reasons, for other reasons that did not want that to happen and wanted to silence him. So, uh, mm. so he was martyred. But his legacy is that there are Eastern Christians that did reunite with Rome in the hopes that this would be a bridge between the two churches and would bring us back to a greater unity. Now, whether or not that has happened, I think we still have a long way to go, but, but I think that is the hope. Okay, listen, thank you for that. I love that kind of stuff. And okay. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot of stuff there that I didn't really understand. But getting you back on your own personal journey, sure, you grew up in what was, you know, a legacy of this Eastern right wing of the Catholic Church, all sanctioned by the Pope, all of them underneath the Pope still. Mm -hmm. okay. That's correct. As a matter of fact, uh, Pope Paul VI, in one of his addresses, talked about the need to respect the different rights within the church, uh, the, the Eastern and the Western rite. He said that it's necessary that we breathe with both lungs, that both mm. these traditions have something to really vivify the church. And so it was a, a, a real importance at that time. And, you know, many people don't really understand it. They see things from their own perspective or their own tradition. And it is, it is uh, new information to a lot of people. So you're one of the younger three. Does that mean you're third to the youngest or second to the youngest? I am the very youngest of the last three, but um, we're, we're seven kids all together. So we were called the little guys. <sighs> and then uh, the oldest three were called the big guys. And my brother Christopher was right in the middle. And he's, he's quoted as saying, am I a little guy or a big guy? So... <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, it, it's more family lore than anything else. Yeah. You know, when you have when you have seven kids, you, you've got to manage them somehow. And uh, it, it works pretty well for us. So it was great. So it's a deeply warm and loving experience for you this time as you're praying with your family. You have a very positive introduction to the idea of God and faith and in your daily life, the rituals of it. And what, how does it live from there? I mean, where do you go? Do you go to a private school? Do you um, participate in the church at an early age? Yeah, well, we would go to church at um, St. Vladimir's Ukrainian Catholic Church in Hempstead. I, I grew up in West Hempstead on Long Island. We would go there every week, and the liturgies are beautiful. We still have a tradition of chanting, and so uh, the chant was part of it. Uh, I was an altar server, so was very, very close to the consecration, very close to the altar during the liturgy. You know, the melodies and the chants that we we learned and that we, we kept, the traditions that we keep on the holidays, uh, all of that was really just part of the fabric of our lives, and it was really just who we were. I mentioned that my mom passed uh, when I was nine, and I think having such a strong faith really helped me through that time. Mm. Um, I guess all people have their faith crisis when they get to their teens or when, when they really have to examine things, but um, I was still quite unscathed by uh, 
by what the world thought of religion or thought of God. And I, it was just who I was and it was just where I was. And I'm very grateful that I had everything of my faith tradition to help me through that time of my mom's death. And I think it made me a, a stronger person. Do you mind if I ask if it was a surprise or if it would, did she take on an illness? Uh, yeah, it, it was. It came very, very quickly. She died of a cerebral aneurysm, mm. and um, so it came without warning. No one knew she was in a coma for a month, and uh, and then at a time where it looked like she might come out of it, things just went the other way. Mm. So it was very, very quick. Mm. I'm sorry to hear that. Of course. Um, so, what's the next major? threshold or kind of tentpole event in those early years, you just referenced that you remained unscathed. I get the impression that your faith was deepened through the death of your mother and it grew. What's the next major stage of your life development or spiritual development at that point? Well, you know, I would say that a lot of it had to do with how um, I saw my dad living it and how I saw my older brothers and sisters living it. You know, it was in the seventies and, uh, it was just at the time when marriage encounter was having its, its start. And so my dad and my mom made the marriage encounter and it was wonderful for them. It's kind of a retreat that a couple would make where they get in touch with the real foundations of their relationship and how it's grounded spiritually. And it was a, it was a real good thing for, for both of them. They learned some things and they learned some practices in doing that that helped us as a family. I remember that uh, for the year after my mom passed, at Sunday dinner, we would, after dinner was over, my dad would put out some kind of topic for us to think about. And we would all go to a space by ourselves and write for 10 minutes and then come back to the table and read what we wrote. Hmm. So it was kind of like, I look back on that now and I'm like, that's pretty high level stuff. Yeah, uh, we're kind of but, having a retreat experience every evening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, every Sunday. And, and it was, oh, yeah, every it was Sunday, a great yeah. thing that my dad just kind of did quite naturally because it was something that made him feel close to my mom and, and their experience. And it really helped us. So kind of thinking through it and sharing through it, discussing it, we were always very, very comfortable in doing that, probably because of that practice. You know, then my older brothers and sister, there were several things that were going on in the church at the time. Christian Awakening was a big retreat experience that my brother uh, went on. My, You know, I, I saw that and saw how important it was. When I was in, I guess it was junior high school, there was uh, the Antioch retreat program. And so that was a kind of a, a spiritual retreat for young people and very consoling, moving thing. A lot of fun being with other kids who are interested in faith. You know, you get to sing, you get to do skits, you, you get to talk about stuff. And so ask the questions, the faith questions that you always wanted to ask. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty formative as well. Is that high school you're saying? Yeah, that was like junior high school, high school. And then uh, I went to public school. But then when I went to college, uh, I went to Marquette. And, yeah, and uh, to be honest, I was a little surprised. I didn't, I never knew that you were from Long Island. Uh, how did you find your way to Marquette for undergrad? 
Well, uh, it's it all goes back to uh, what every college search is like. And, you know, you have the schools that you wanted to go to but didn't get into and the schools you got into but didn't really want to go to. And Marquette was right in the middle of those. <laughs> so it was someone had recommended it. I looked into it. And I have to say, I'm really happy and glad that I went there, met a group of friends the first week of freshman orientation that I'm still in contact with. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's really, uh, it's really, really a great place. And um, that's where I met the Jesuits. That's where I first had my experience of understanding what a Jesuit vocation might look like or what Jesuit ministry was. And that I found very impressive, and that led me to the spirituality of St. Ignatius and eventually to consider entering the novitiate, which I did after my junior year of uh, of college. So even before I graduated, I decided to enter the novitiate. So you did complete your bachelor's degree, but you you started the novitiate prior to even completing the bachelor's degree. That's correct. I actually had worked it out. Um, Dean Mike Price. You yeah. know him? Yeah. He he called me into his office and he said, I hear you're leaving us. And I said, yeah, Mike, you know, I'm, I really, I have this vocation. I want to explore it. And he says, well, don't you want a Marquette degree? And I said, of course I do. So, so let's see what we can do. So, um, so rather than having all of my Marquette credits transfer someplace else, he and I worked out a final semester for me so that my novitiate credits would transfer back to Marquette and complete the degree that way. Oh, so, how wonderful. Yeah. And it was great. Yeah, what was your degree in? In theater, so okay, I was a mup. Yeah, right on. <laughs> so when you came back, the Hellfire stage was still the stage when you were there, correct? That's right. It was it was the new stage oh, at that yes. point. Yes, it was really really a big thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it it was very freaky coming back, but it was a lot of fun and very nostalgic. Felt like I didn't leave. So can you pinpoint? I'm sure this is. Probably there isn't one moment, but could you maybe pinpoint one or a sequence of events that leads to you considering, I mean, this, this is a question I've been waiting to ask, honestly, is when do you, mm. when do you meet that path? Where do you see that fork where you start to see, or at least what I would assume looks like a fork? It doesn't, obviously, sure. judging by the rest of your life. You were able to bridge both your love for the arts and performance with your devotion to your faith. But at the moment, I imagine it must have felt like two divergent paths. And you see something calling you, you feel something calling you, and yet you're pursuing the world of theater. And I, I can't speak for you. I can't wait to hear about this, but I have no idea if you always intended to go back to New York. Did you ever, ever entertain going to California? Things like that. When do you start to feel that pull become real and why? Well, you know, I, I guess it all began when I was at Marquette and um, I was very much career oriented, very much ambitious for myself in terms of, of who I wanted to be in the theater. And of course, that's for, that starts with who you want to be in your little corner of the theater. And so we were having auditions for Peter Schaffer's Equus. And, you know, such a demanding play and it was really edgy at the time. And so I was auditioning for the role of Alan Strang and it was eventually cast in it. But in the casting process, I, I realized certain things about myself. You know, I was 
and M, uh, a Stanislavski actor. So I was approaching the role from the inside and I would do all these very, very overly zealous actor exercises to get into the experience of the character. But in the meantime, unless you really have clear boundaries, you wind up letting that bleed into your regular life and you alienate people and you piss people off. And there were some things that I was doing at that time that really made my friends kind of have to shake me by the shoulders and say, hey, look what's going on. This is not cool. So that made me think about it. And around that same time, I met Dan Schutte, who was a Jesuit, who was a composer. And um, he was working at the dorm where I was an RA. And I said, well, you know, there's, there's a real tension. There's a real possibility that the demands of a career, the demands of this could really undercut the things that I find most precious about why I wanted to get into it in the first place. When I was in high school, we had this group called Creative Educational Systems, and they very firmly instilled in us the idea that artists are servants and that there was an aspect of service to everything that we did. It was something that I loved. I really, really took to heart. But the more ambitious I got about my own career, the more I saw that begin to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. Mm -hmm. So seeing how Dan used his talents for music for the good of others and for the good of of the church and the glory of God, it made me consider, is that something that God is asking me to do with this? And so I did. I went into the novitiate and I thought I was going to have to give up theater and I did have to give up theater for a while. But every place that I was missioned, the thing that they were most interested in about my expertise and about who I was, was my theater background. And so again and again, it came back that I wound up doing theater work in the midst of my ministry which made my superiors consider, well, perhaps this is what God wants you to do. And so eventually those things come back together. But at at first, you know, at first you think that it's going to be one or the other. Hmm. I don't know if you are a fan of the movie Babette's Feast uh, or if you've ever seen that. I don't think I have, although hearing the name again reminds me that uh, it was recommended to me once before, but please speak about it. Well, um, there's this really beautiful speech that happens at the end of it where these main characters who think that they have have had to make a choice in one thing or the other for the good of what they believe their life should be through certain circumstances, they come back together at the end of the film. So um, there's this beautiful speech at the end of it where this general who has sworn, he fell in love with one of the young ladies who's a main character and uh, she had to stay with her father and continue the work that uh, her father had established for her. And so he became very embittered, went and became very, very successful, all kinds of history passes. And at the end of his life, he finds himself back in that little town, having dinner with these these women in a very remarkable way through this main character of Babette. And uh, he quotes one of the father's sermons that says, mercy and truth have met, justice and peace have kissed. Those things that we think that we choose have been given us. And those things that we thought we have renounced have also been given to us. 
for this is God's mercy. And it's a beautiful way of, of seeing how what I truly believe is that if I am in a spiritual path that is the right one for me, everything will be provided. Uh, it might come in strange times and in very labyrinthine ways and cycling back in surprising ways, but, um, but it's, a, it's a wonderful adventure. That's a beautiful place for us to take our first break. Okay. So we'll be back with George in a couple of minutes. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully, Discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everybody, we're back with Father George Drance, and he just got done telling a beautiful story about this coming together, this merging, this synthesis of kind of two divergent paths, a path of, of a life in the arts and a path of spiritual devotion. And they thread together really nicely in his story. And I, I want to ask you right now, where are those moments of resistance in there? Where do you feel them in a personal sense? Maybe they take the form of doubt. It doesn't seem that you, you don't seem to be intimating doubt. Or maybe there's resistance from the outside that you haven't spoken to yet. Where, where are moments of resistance in those early years as you try to struggle to find your way or you are guided into the, the person you're meant to be at that time? Well, that's a great question. I think it, it, they all show themselves in, in very, very little ways at first. And, you know, the little ways always prepare us for the big ways. And some of the more significant experiences I remember, uh, I remember when I was considering a vocation and I came back, I was living in Huntington, Long Island at the time. And I was in a parish and, uh, you know, it was kind of one of those real suburban, very, very human parishes where <laughs> they're just so many things that would drive you absolutely crazy, <laughs> you know, that, uh, you know, you're going to church and in the parking lot, you know, there's this family that's coming out of the car and you see a parent smack the child right wow. in the parking lot out, out, outside the church. You know, back then it was, you know, smacks were part of the culture. So, it, but it, it was a little jarring, you know, then you get in and there's the leader of song who's just so much more interested in themselves than they are in really what's going on. Or right. you have a celebrant who chooses to preach on something that has absolutely nothing to do with the readings. You know, communion really means a lot to you, but you go up and there's uh, someone who's like in flip-flops with his hands on his ribs, sticking out his tongue as if it's like a <laughs> ice cream or something like that, you know? And, and so I remember, uh, I, I, I remember um, that experience and I remember coming back and having received and kneeling down and just saying, how can I do this, God? Mm -hmm. How can I go into this world? And with all of this stuff, 
And then I kind of like was in the middle of my thing. And, you know, you get that sense. It's not like you hear these words. It's not like the sky parts or the bricks fall down or the beam of light happens. But you, you get a sense of a very, very clear thought or a voice. And, and that very, very clear thought said with God's voice to me, aren't I bigger than all of that? Mm. And I was like, wow, yeah, yeah, God, you kind of are. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you made everything. I guess you are. So, uh, so that was kind of the fundamental threshold that I crossed. And um, whenever I got to these moments and much bigger moments in terms of, you know, looking at how there's a disconnect between some people who use religion for their own agenda and a disconnect between certain things that the church is really trying to um, hunker down on out of fear and certain things that are happening in life that are are so important that can't be ignored or just all of those disconnects uh, along the way, that phrase kept coming back to me, aren't I bigger than all of that? And I would take it to prayer and I would go through it and I would work through it. You know, so, I mean, there there are certain things that just kind of happen that way. And other resistances, it's, it's just like, well, you know, why try to explain it? Because as much as it's clear to me, it's not clear to other people. I remember I was with, at a New Year's Eve party with my brother and, and my sister-in-law, you know, kind of visiting. I, I think at the time I was, I was studying philosophy in, in St. Louis. And so my brother, Michael says, Hey, Georgie, you want to go to a New Year's Eve party? And you know, yeah, we, we do talk with Long Island. I was just so, going to say, I mean, like, I didn't want to call that out, but thank you for giving me that. <laughs> so yes, I, I grew up that way. You, you realize very quickly in a, in a theater career that there's only so far that will take you and you work very, very hard. <laughs> but, um, but you know, give me three days with my family or two beers and the accent will come back. Yeah, good. Good. So, That's yeah. lovely, man. Oh man. I to be a fly on the wall. Okay. Okay, but go on. <laughs> so he says, uh, you know, you want to go to New Year's Eve party? Says, well, you know, not really, but if you and Pat are going, he says, well, yeah, I don't want to go either. But I said, well, what's up? He goes, well, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so are cool, but all their friends, they're real jerks. All they talk about is, you know, how much you make and what's your next promotion. And oh, I said, come on, come on. It can't be that bad. So we get there. I literally am in the door don't have my second arm out of the sleeve of the coat when someone at the party says, so what do you do? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here it goes. Here it goes. Here it starts. So resistance, resistance, resistance. So I said, oh, I'm studying philosophy. Philosophy. What are you going to do with that? Oh, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. so you can't put it off any longer. So you say, have you ever heard of the Jesuits? No. Well, they're an order of priests in the Catholic Church, and um, I'm studying to be a Jesuit. And how long does it take you to become this Jesuit? I said, well, it's different for everyone in their program, but um, it's usually between 10 and 15 years. And the person, like, is stunned. And they said, do you make as much as a doctor? (laughs) 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 And I said, no, but the fringe benefits are eternal. Oh, that is good. <laughs> <laughs> that is so, smooth. So, you know, it's like um, when you come to the resistance, a good dose of humor is a big help. A good dose of looking at things 
square in the face and realize that they're not quite sure where they're coming from. Another great piece of theater on Golden Pond, a line that I use all the time in counseling and in spiritual direction. You know, sometimes you have to look hard at a person and realize they're doing the best they can. And if they can't understand where I'm coming from, if they can't understand what's important to me, they simply can't get it. And I have to look hard at them and realize they're doing the best they can. And in whatever way, I I have to let go of it or change the subject or see if I can engage and make it a way of sharing something substantial. So there's that. Um, you know, then there are the the moments with the career where the ambition comes back. I remember this uh, this moment where before I actually went to grad school when I was still studying uh, studying theology in Boston, and I started working with the American Repertory Theater. Uh, I did a couple shows as the ensemble. I was an original cast member in Paula Vogel's play Hot and Throbbing, directed by Anne Bogart. Mm. Um, So I I had different roles that were coming up, and I would go to my superior, and I would say, so here's a role that's offered to me. Here's what I love about the role. Here's where I see redemption in the role. Here's where I see what's really important about it. Here's where I see the risk. You know, Here's where I see people could misunderstand it. And we would discern it together, and then he would say, okay, so... Sounds like you know what you're doing. Go for it. So after a couple of these, he said, I trust your judgment. Just go for that. But, you know, it was it would always be a question of I know someone's going to get their feathers ruffled about what I'm doing or what I'm involved in. But if if I see redemption in something and if it's worth it, I mean, Paula's play was about a great, great central question. Basically, the play asks, if we see sexuality as obscene, why don't we see domestic violence as obscene? Mm. And so Hot and Throbbing deals with pornography and domestic violence, and it examines those things. I I thought it was a really important question to ask society, and so uh, I devoted myself to that project. Fast forward after graduate school, I'm offered a role by a director in Paris. I mean, this would be a dream gig. It would be six months in Paris working on this show. Fantastic opportunity. Um, I read the script and it was absolutely without redemption. It was cruelty for cruelty's sake. It was gratuitous mm. aggression and violence. And and I said, you know, I'm sorry, but there's nothing in this play that attracts me. And he says, oh, I know the script is terrible, but but with the actions, I said, well, am I going to be saying these words? And he says, well, yes, you will. And I said, well, I can't say these words. I cannot bring myself to spend six months of my life to repeat these things over and over again. It's just not going to be good for me. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, I wouldn't let those things go. Yeah. I mean, so there are there are things that happen all the time. You know, things that happen in the church itself, where you look at um, certain things that, as any human institution comes up against, where it has not been handled well. And you say, well, how can I stay in this? How can I stay in that? And, And usually what happens, it's the people that I minister to, the people that I'm involved with in my daily ministry that call me to stay, that call me to uh, recommit, that call me to be a bridge, um, that call me to be a place where people can talk about difficult things, where people can bring up difficult conversations and can work through them and begin to heal, hopefully. Hmm. Yeah. Have you ever been in a situation where 
you wanted to vocalize something or wanted to take something head on with someone either either in your direct proximity as a, a peer in your community of priests or someone in a, a different parish, a different area that you wanted to step out in some way, but you had to check yourself from being able to take on something in a way that you wish you could? Have you ever been forced mm. into that situation? Or have you ever found yeah. yourself in that situation? Well, uh, Nick, you've worked with me. Uh, have you seen me as someone who needs to keep myself in check? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, but I have to ask the question <laughs> in a way that, right. uh, that so, doesn't know. <laughs> so it's, I, 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 I have to say that, again, I, I credit my family with that. Uh, my dad was someone who was always speaking out and always taught us that it was important to speak your mind. Now, he would do that and he would do that and he would take things on full on and it caused um, it caused a lot of struggle for him. So how do I learn from both the positive and the negative part of that? I learned that, yes, it's worth doing. Uh, I am going to take it on, but there's a way to do it that doesn't really put the other person in a situation where they feel attacked or where they feel it's it's one thing or another. And so I began to cultivate a way of certainly taking things on, but doing it in a measured tone. Um, when it needs to be engaged with a little bit of fire, I'm not afraid of the fire, but I'm also there to really mitigate it as well and and talk about how to engage it truthfully, but also in a way that, first and foremost, comes from a place of care and comes from a place of, of seeking the truth. And I have to say that that's certainly something that the scholarship of the Jesuits being trained, we take two years of philosophy studies, we do uh, four years of theology studies, and part of our devotion to study is to be able to engage these questions on very, very many different levels and at a level that people can engage in it and not be put off by it. So it's, it is something that has had to be cultivated, but I have to say that I've been blessed with really good superiors who trust my judgment and trust my way of engaging in certain questions. And when I need help in phrasing certain things, there are friends that I go to and I, I say, let me run this by you. And, you know, we talk about it and we say, you know, like, well, you might not want to say that or you might want to do this. Or, <laughs> a little too long island really, there, George. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I've embraced my inner Long Islander and I'm good with it. Yeah, that's but there good. are times where it could take a backseat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. So I wanted to ask you something. Mm-hmm. You repeated the word redemption. Is there redemption in this role? Is there redemption in in this career move or in this in this path? Specifically, we're talking about the plays, but the question I want to ask is, did you crystallize an idea of mission for yourself? And how did that or did that not take form as you've served in your ministry? Uh, great question. Again, um, we have to look at this in terms of a lifespan. And I'm going to talk about myself first, and then I'm going to talk about Calderon de Albarca, where the conversation began. So I entered the Jesuits when I was a junior in college. So what was that, 20, 21, I guess? 
a 21-year-old's view of life is very different than a 58-year-old's <laughs> view of life. So, I mean, what does a 21-year-old think? The 21-year-old thinks that I am going to be the one who single-handedly uh, solves every problem, gets mm-hmm. everything right, conquers the demons, rights every wrong, oh, um, yeah. you know, doesn't fall prey to those human things that every human being has mm-hmm. fallen prey to before me. You know, there's, there's a great deal of, um, of pride in the ambitions and even the good desires of a young person. There's just, there's just not the possibility of the scope of the embracing of difficulty that someone who's more experienced comes to. So I had an idea that I was going to be on this trajectory. I was going to do this and I was going, you know, and and of course, you know, nothing turns out that way. But if I am honest with myself and if I'm prudent with myself, you begin a process in what we call in Jesuit spirituality of discernment of spirits is at any given moment, my heart is being moved and my heart is being moved either by a spirit that moves me closer to what God wants for me and what wants me for the world, or there's a spirit that moves me farther away from what God wants for me or wants for the world. And usually that's into some kind of selfishness or some kind of, you know, any kind of manifestation of, of that ego. So yeah, I've had to purify that. But again, I've been given the tools to do that because of Ignatian spirituality, because of who Ignatius was. You know, he was the founder of the Jesuits. He wanted to be, his his plans changed. He wanted to be a pilgrim in the Holy Land. And he got to the Holy Land and the people there said, well, we don't want you here. So mm. he went back and he began, well, what would a pilgrimage look like in my own land? How can I seek out the path of Christ, not in the actual place, places where he walked, but in the places that he walks right now, in the hearts of the people who follow him now, in the questions of the people who are looking to be with him now. And it was because of that, that he began to notice these certain characteristics of there are ways in which one spirit is going to manifest itself that way and another spirit's going to manifest itself that way. So we do a practice called the examine, which is, you know, at the end of the day or twice a day, you basically take some time and you look over things and you say, where was the spirit of God calling me? How did I respond? Did it bear fruit or did it create a problem? And then we reassess that. So again, that's, that's something that manifests itself in Ignatius's own work. He wanted, he wanted the only document of the Society of Jesus of the Jesuits to be the spiritual exercises, to be this four-week-long retreat that really um, gets you in touch with the person of Christ and asks you if you want to form yourself in that same way. But they asked him, and they uh, really required him to write constitutions once the Jesuits became a formal organization. So constitutions are what does a superior do? What does a minister do? What does a house of studies look like? What does a novitiate look like? So, so he said, okay, if you, if you need that, I'll do that. Detail, 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 incredible, very, very specific about what it is that he wanted. And at the end of all of it, the end of this very, very long of specifics, he would write, which is classic of him, or whatever is more conducive to the person, place, and circumstances. Wow. So, you know, and, and this is this is the 16th century that we're talking about, where basically he's saying, so here's the ideal. Yeah, that's the 21-year-old. 
And then here's the reality. Whatever is more conducive to the person, place, and circumstances. There's a built-in flexibility. There's a built-in, it's going to be different from day to day. It's not going to sound the same. It's not going to look the same. It's not going to feel the same from day to day. And your mission, uh, your responsibility, your joy is to sift through those moments and find the movements that really bring you to a place of fulfillment. So the kind of the spirituality is built into that. And so like right now with my own theater company, with Magis Theater Company, um, people find it crazy the way that I run the company because basically they say, well, what's your, what's your strategic plan? I said, my strategic plan is discernment. <laughs> um, well, what does that mean? What are you going to do five years from now? I said, well, I don't know what the world is going to be like five years from now. How can I, how can I say that? And I mean, we're living in a time right now where, where in the last two months, three months, we've seen exactly that. Mm. So, I mean, how many strategic plans now are completely out the window and you have to go back. But, you know, what we do at Magis is we say, what are you all concerned about? And the people in the company talk about what they're concerned about. They talk about what they see in the world. We entertain different texts. Um, we look at five or six different plays. We read them together. We say, okay, so now hold these inside you and let's wait to see what the world does. And when it seems right for the text that we're considering to really engage in the world, that's when we do that text. That's when we do that play. So it's a very flexible model, but it drives the bottom liners crazy. Mm. But let's look at uh, Calderon de la Barca. I mean, your your question was really about redemption and where is redemption. Uh, for Ignatius, redemption is in following the spirit of Christ in the present moment. And that present moment is what brings us closer to the heart of what uh, what we believe is the conversation that the Trinity is constantly having of how best to love the world and how best uh, to care for us. It's the conversation that sent Christ to be one of us that is responsible for the incarnation. It's a, it's a conversation that we see in Life is a Dream between power, wisdom, and love when they're talking about creation and when they're talking about what could possibly go wrong. So now Calderon wrote that when he was 77 years old, very, very different than a 36-year-old ambitious court poet. He's already at that time just gotten sick of the court. He's retreated. Um, he's actually become a priest, I think a Franciscan priest, I'm not mm. sure. But um, he begins to write spiritual allegories and he goes through all the myths and he talks about redemption as it is in these classical stories of pagan traditions, but he looks for the spiritual message in them. He runs out of myths. And so what does he do? He goes back to his old plays. And so he takes his 1635, 1636 life as a dream, and he rewrites it. Instead of the court of Poland, it's now in the court of the universe. Instead of the question being, will Segismundo be a worthy ruler? The question now in the, in the later one, in the Alto Sacramental, is is the human being a fitting caretaker for creation? And the answer, of course, is, well, not yet. There's still a lot that the human being needs, needs to, to learn. And we see him go through and we see him make mistakes and we see him listen to his free will and throw off his understanding until that moment where he's in chains because of his own choices. And wisdom says to power, 
if you allow me to go down, I will take the man's fault on myself. And being infinite myself, the infinite fault can have infinite recompense. So wisdom becomes the person that meets man. And when no one else can take the chains that man has off, free will can't take them off, understanding can't take them off, man says, see if you can. Mm-hmm. And then wisdom wisdom takes them off. And then there's that wonderful moment where wisdom takes the, the chains into her hands and she turns to the audience and she holds the chains and she says, once and for all, man, put your prisons in my hands. That's redemption for me. And, um, you know, what is it? How do we enslave ourselves to all kinds of things? I mean, the list goes on and on. And how do we give those prisons over? I think that's where uh, redemption is. Christ did that with taking on what the world thought was the way to be and trusting that even death would not stop the love of God. And Christ took that all the way to the cross, a heinous way, a terrorist way, uh, an authoritarian way, an invading army way of being executed. And in the midst of that, trusted that God still was a God of love and would not let that be the end of the story. Hmm. So as a person of faith, um, that was not the end of the story, and Christ conquered death. In, in the Eastern Rite, every Easter, we sing this beautiful hymn, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and bestowing life to those who are in the tombs. So that's kind of the story of redemption. Now, life and death is around us every day. Choices for life or choices for death are in our everyday vocabulary. How we bring ourselves to those choices is where redemption is and is where the power of Christ is. Wow, it's very powerful, Father. Thank you very much for sharing. And this is a perfect moment to take our final break. We'll be back for our final segment in just a minute. Great. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners, and it means a lot to me, because I read them, and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everyone, we're back with Father George Drance in our last segment. And off mic, I asked him if there's anything he wanted to speak to. And he mentioned that you wanted to speak specifically to a, a couple of collaborators. Yeah, I, I think that I was really formed by Ellen Stewart and Elizabeth Suedos at La Mama. I was very lucky that in my first year of graduate school, a classmate of mine, Mia, who is now the artistic director of La Mama after Ellen's passing, Mia introduced me to Ellen because there was uh, there was a show that was going on in the summer and asked me if I wanted to be a part of that. She thought that I kind of fit the profile. So I met Ellen. Ellen is a tremendous woman, and uh, she's probably done more to change 
the American theater, the world theater, single-handedly than any other person I can imagine. She's the first woman of color to get a bank loan in New York, first woman of color to be a designer at Saks Fifth Avenue. She had two ball gowns at Princess Grace's coronation, and she was the only designer that had two gowns worn by people who were at that event. Very successful. She gave it all up because um, she lived in the Lower East Side, and there were friends of hers who couldn't get their work done. And who were these friends? Sam Shepard, Lanford Wilson, Hmm. Harvey Firestein, you know, people who are kind of the bread and butter of the American theater. And um, they were just kind of too cutting edge to have a home anyplace else. Well, Ellen made a home for that. And she just allowed things to happen. She just made them happen through her own work, through her own dedication. Well, in 1996, I did a tour with her that, uh, <laughs> this is very, very, very typically Ellen. The Balkans were in incredible turmoil. The United States had an embargo against that, but we went against the embargo to bring these two pieces of theater to a tour that went through Serbia, Croatia, Macedonia, and then some other places in Europe. But I remember this moment where We were in Belgrade, and there was a press conference about this piece that we were doing in um, Kalamegdan Fortress, which is in the middle of the city. It's in like a fourth century fortress or something like that. And so they were asking about certain names in the cast list. There was a Croatian name in the cast list. So someone asked, will he be performing? And Alan, talk about not flinching or not being afraid to take on something. She looked at him and she said, well, you know, with a name like that, a Croatian name like that, they would never let him over the border. This was the dissolution of the Yugoslav republics and they're being pulled back into these other other places. She says, now look, I remember you all when you were just one thing and you can all start loving each other anytime you want. And half the journalists were leaning forward and nodding. The other half were leaning back with their arms folded across their chest. Mm. And I said, isn't this the world right now? Half the world leaning forward and, and wanting that. And half the people leaning back with their arms folded, resolved that it's not gonna happen. But Ellen made it happen. And through the kind of work that she did, I went all over the world with her. Um, I did any number of shows with her as a close collaborator. And she just taught me probably everything that I know. Elizabeth Suedos, composer, I, I first met her when we did Mythos Oedipus, which was Oedipus that Ellen Stewart was directing, but Elizabeth did the music. Then Liz and I did over 20 shows together. She wrote the music for my uh, solo show of the Gospel of Mark. And when Liz was feeling unable to take on the full burden of directing a production of The Golem at NYU because of the chemotherapy she was going through, she asked me to be her co-director. So we had a very, very close relationship that way. And Liz is is someone, again, who has formed me. We were doing Brecht's uh, Chalk Circle as our thesis production in Columbia, and Liz was composing amazing music. We'd spend hours and hours learning it. We would do it for the director, 
and he would cut half of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she could see our faces. Again, I wasn't a young person of 21 at the time, like many of my classmates, but I was a young person of 35 at the time, but still young enough. And so she'd look at us and she'd say, do you guys think that I feel bad because he cut half my music? And um, she said, there are certain things that are just good in and of themselves, whether or not they make it into the show. And making music is just good. Hmm. And that's a lesson that, that kind of has stayed with me. And being able to work with her over the years has been a tremendous blessing. And um, I consider her one of my greatest teachers, both her and Ellen. There's this uh, concept in Judaism of the Lamed Vavnik, I think, which are the 36 righteous souls, I might get the number wrong, but whose responsibility it is to hold the world together through prayer. Now, if you are one of them, you don't know that you're one of them. So the idea is that every believer must pray as if they could be one of them. Hmm. So I really believe that Liz was one of them. I think through her work, through her artistry, um, through everything that she has done, she's held the world together and produced some of the greatest talent that we see on Broadway right now, uh, that we see in the theater right now, very much in the same way that Ellen did. And um, when Ellen passed, there were a few of us in the office at La Mama planning the funeral. And at one point... Liz turned to me and she said, what do we do now? And she said, we just have to take it on us. And um, so I guess that's where I feel the call is at this moment, is to continue in the vein of Alan Stewart, to continue in the vein of Elizabeth Suedos. Will I, will I ever reach a, a fraction of what they did? I don't know that that's the right question, but will I ask for a double portion of their spirit? Absolutely. And um, will I live and breathe and work as if that is the most thrilling thing to do? Absolutely. Wow, those are beautiful sentiments about some really extraordinary people. Something you just spoke about dovetails with a, a question, and I have to ask it. You may have already answered it in the way that you need to, but I have to ask it nonetheless. So in my early experiences of what would be considered transcendent to me in my life, I've had that happen to me in different ways. I've had it probably most often in a performance, but there have been moments where I have that transcendence in in nature or a kind of wonderful symmetry of different events, but I, I wonder, is there a way that that euphoria of transcendence in your life is best synthesized? So you have some sort of euphoric connection in your spiritual life that you've been able to live through your ministry as a Jesuit. You've also clearly, you have this as an artist and as a director, as someone who travels the world, in this work, but is there a way that lives above just one or the other where they come together in the right way, where you feel like you've been able to marry them all together at the same time? 
Yeah, I think that's every spiritual discipline um, has at its core an awareness of the fullness of the present moment. And if we could really understand what that is, then perhaps that's where we would be. Now, the present moment is something that's completely elusive. You know, Peter Brook talks about it as the golden fish that we're always trying to catch. Any spiritual tradition has its own way of talking about it. Jesus begins his public ministry with saying, the time of favor is now, the kingdom of God is at hand. So the question is, I think perhaps best put by Thornton Wilder in Act 3 of Our Town, where Emily has uh, died in childbirth and is on the other side. She senses that she can go back to earth for a moment. Everyone that's around her says, don't, it'll, it'll be too painful. You'll be, you'll be sorry that you went. She goes back and she sees how quickly we run through life. And um, at one point she tries to interrupt and she says, mama, just look at me. We don't have time to look at each other. And um, at the end, she, she has to go back because it is too painful. She can't stay very long at all. And she asks the stage manager, who's kind of like this Virgil-like god or guide, I should say, that takes her through this journey. And she says, does anyone realize life while they live it every, every minute? And his response is no. Mm. The saints and poets, they do some. And, and that's, I thought, um, what a perfect thing. The saints and poets, they do some. Mm. And that um, sanctity and art are really both about looking to the present moment and recognizing that if things align, we are in the presence of God. And uh, if we can just step out of the things that numb us or that make us rush past or that make us blind or that somehow or another make us ignore or miss the presence of God. If we can put those things aside, then that's transcendence. And that can happen in church. That can happen in a sunset. Um, that can happen in any number of ways. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a spiritual tradition that uh, gives me practices to continue to look for that. And also that respects the fact that it can be present anywhere, that God is not limited to one space or one time, but that God wants to be present in our every, every minute. Mm. That's beautiful. It was such, it was already a great honor to begin the conversation with you. And I am so thankful that you took the time to share in this way. It left me with a lot of beautiful thoughts and things to reflect on, and I hope it does the same for the listeners. So thanks, Father Drance. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Nick. It was a pleasure to be with you. All right, I'll say goodbye to you in a second, but let me say goodbye to the show. Thank you all for listening.
George, I have one last question. I want to know, but I'm going to ask out of courtesy because I don't know, because that's such a beautiful ending. I could just start and make the ending from there. But a question that I have been enjoying asking because of the spectrum of responses it gets Mm -hmm. is what makes you despair and what gives you hope? Is that an interesting question for you to close the show on? Huh. Or would you rather not uh, engage in it? Um, I think at this moment, what it feels like to me, Nick, is that uh, the spirit of despair is kind of in the driver's seat right now. Mm. <laughs> and mm. I've, been, um, I've been trying to, to listen to the spirit of hope. And again, every moment could potentially give us hope if we're open to the sacredness of the moment, the monumental nature of what is present in a moment of life. So I, I don't know, maybe the other one is a better end. Well, then that sounds good. 